Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, you know, I just, I really, I really love how the sun comes up and then it goes down. Mm-hmm. It really makes my day. Oh, God. No. Not that it one. It just makes my day. I, I just, I don't know what else to say. It's, not, I think it's really great. I'm not, I'm not not laughing because I don't get it. I'm not laughing because it's not funny. Hank, you know what I would have tweeted this week? What? I would have tweeted about the fact that I'm about to be a guest at a live show recording of my favorite podcast not distributed by WNYC, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You're going to go to a you're going to do a live show. I'm going to be part of the live show with Casper and Vanessa. I'm so excited and nervous. It's the last chapter of the 5th book, Hank. It's an intense chapter. Oh, wow. You got a finale. A lot of discussion about life after yeah. death. So, if you're reading a, a a book like Harry Potter as a sacred text, this is a meaty chapter. Uh John, I also uh have have things that I can't tweet about. For example, this this email I just got from my editor. Ha, I love this. Not sure it's the title, but I love it. Mm. How is it so hard to title a book, John? Mm. Let me tell you what that email means. Ha, no. (laughs) Uh, Well, the ones she's suggesting aren't any good either. (laughs) That should be your response. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, if you don't like my ideas, send me some good ones. <laughs> I had so many bad titles. I mean, for all of my books, but especially for The Fault in Our Stars and Turtles all the way down. But I had so many bad titles for The Fault in Our Stars. And if it hadn't been for Rosiana saying that I should just call it The Fault in Our Stars, God only knows what would have happened. I really wanted to call it the sequel, with the idea being that it was a sequel to a book that mm, didn't exist. That's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Not a great idea. No one would buy that book. They'd be like, where's the first one? I know. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, obviously, but think of how that book might have sold if it had been called the sequel. It could have just lit the world on fire. <laughs> it could have done really well. It could have. I mean, imagine a movie called the sequel about 
Two kids with chronic illness. <laughs> it's got Hollywood gold written well, all over it. I writing books is hard, and uh, I mean, I'm doing my best. It it is hard, but every time I complained about writing books, my dad, also your dad, always said, "Well, <laughs> it ain't coal mining, and it ain't." Yep. It ain't coal mining. Speaking of things that aren't coal mining, how about our career as professional <laughs> givers of dubious <laughs> advice? This first question comes from Julia, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I graduated from college last spring, and I'm currently working at my first real-world job at a law firm. I like it so far. Why do people say I'm working at my first real-world job? Like, what are the other jobs exactly? <laughs> yeah, well, they mostly take place inside of role-playing games. Yeah, right. I used to, like... <laughs> professionally a- mine coins for World of Warcraft players, but now I'm working at a law firm. <laughs> Every job is real. Yeah, unless unless you are blacksmithing for your D&D crew. Even that, I would argue, is a real job. Anyway, Julia writes, I like it so far and everything, but the one thing that keeps tripping me up is envelopes. We receive a lot of letters... I know that your law firm receives a lot of letters, Julia, because I have lawyers and I have to send them (laughs) envelopes full of money every month. We receive a lot of letters and it is my job to open them, but I can never seem to get the darn things open. If I try to open them by peeling back the glued flap, the envelope tears and it looks like a wild animal attack. If I tear open the side, I tend to accidentally rip the contents as well. How does one open an envelope? This is such a young person problem. Like, this is such a thing (laughs) for people between the ages of, like, four and 30. And then people older than that, like, that was all we had, Julia, okay? We didn't have emails. We had to open (laughs) envelopes. It was the only way we could communicate with each other. Yeah. Also, the great thing about having envelopes all the time is you get to have a small sword on your desk. Yes. Specifically for the purpose of opening envelopes. That's right. There's like a, there's a thing. That's what it's for. It's a desk sword. It's literally called the desk sword envelope opener. What are they called? Letter openers. They're called That's what they're letter called. Openers, they're called letter John. openers. <laughs> it's a tiny sword, uh, Julia. And as it happens, uh, I have an extra one and I'm sending it to you. So All right. you're getting you're getting Boom. a sword. I don't usually solve problems when I answer questions, but I, I just so happen to have an extra desk sword and it's headed your way. It's really, really cool looking. Is it possible that all people under the age of thirty don't yet have a letter opener, but they will all need to get one, and so we should start selling them at DFTBA.com? Slow down, cowboy. You've just had a million dollar idea. Stop everything. <laughs> Cancel the pod. R- Rain in that horse, Hank Green. That is such a good idea. Oh my god. Branded branded letter openers that maybe they should what should what's uh but like what's what's in with our brand but also sword shaped though. Like I have this is a problem. No, actually the newest letter openers, Hank, they no longer look like little swords. They now are very ergonomic and the uh, Mm. sword part of the letter opener is like hidden so you can't access it. It's like a safety razor letter opener. Oh, I see that. I don't like it at all. I hate it. I want it to look like a sword. Yeah, but I think we're going to have a hard time selling millions of dollars worth of swords But and we need to... uh, Suddenly, Hank and I have been thinking a lot about making money because we have to raise a lot of money for uh, Partners in Health for the projects that we want to do or help fund in Sierra Leone. And so Hank and I have been having a series of conversations, which at one point Hank said, this must be how regular business people talk all the time. 
<laughs> where the only thing we care about is making money. Like the the only thing that it matters is will can we maximize revenue from this product? Right. Yeah. Which is I guess that's how all business is usually done. Um, I don't know, John. I like it when they look like swords. All right. Here's the deal, Hank. I am buying uh, 400 of these letter openers on Amazon right now. I know that might not be the most efficient way, but they're crazy cheap. <laughs> um, they're like 30 cents a piece, but I probably shouldn't uh-huh. reveal this. Then I'm going to uh, sign each of them and I'm going to sell mm-hmm. them for $19.95 at DFTBA.com, and they will be available by Monday. And all proceeds to Partners in Health. All proceeds to Partners in Health, DFTBA.com, uh, letter opener signed by me, and I'll probably like put a spiral on some of them. They'll be great. Believe me, this will be the best $19 you ever <laughs> spent, and all proceeds go to Partners in Health. <laughs> okay. Problem solved. Is 20 but, times 2400 uh, not, not for... What? Is 20 times 20 400? 20 times 20 is 400. And what's 400 times 19? It's $7,600. They're 22 bucks a piece. Okay, John has changed the price to 2200 bucks a piece. He, he wants he wants $8,800 for Partners in Health. Yeah. We're, feels like we're doing, we're doing the Project for Awesome right now, which is not a bad feeling. Like, I like that feeling. Uh, it's all that, by the way, that's it's going to be all the time now. It's just always the Project for Awesome <laughs> for the rest of all time. That's the deal now. Okay. All right. Well, now you can get your envelopes open. Everybody except for Julia needs to get these things. Julia, however, cannot, does not need to because you're going to send her your desk sword. I just bought them. God, that was easy. <laughs> Don't shop at Amazon. The, John, John has too much power. <laughs> do, as I, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> The next question that we've got comes from Shireen, who asks, Dear Hank and John, how does YouTube make money? Not the creators, kind of them too, though, but the actual site. Any site, really. I get that when you click on a thing, you spend time on a certain website, that time is money, but like, how? Who sees over all of this? What does the hierarchy look like? Is there a hierarchy? Where's the bank? Is it like stocks? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it... You know what, though? Like, when I read this question, initially I was like, no, it's nothing like stocks. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, it is kind of stocks, but essentially YouTube is buying and selling instead of, like, pieces of a company, they're selling pieces of your attention. Right, and there's a market, um, and the market depends on who you are and what kind of content you're watching and how much money you have and when you were born and where you live and all that stuff, which is really upsetting and crazy. Like, you you are being auctioned off by a computer program, Shireen. Well, not you, but your attention, which does over time shape the person that you become, of course, because what you watch becomes a, I mean, like a kind of like an infection in your brain, right? Like it shapes your worldview. What you pay attention to shapes your worldview. And we feel like Mm -hmm. we're choosing what we pay attention to. But in many cases, at least when I'm on the internet, I'm not really actively choosing what to pay attention to. I'm sort of like uh, in a state of empty ingestion, I would say. It's not dissimilar to when it's like 10 o'clock at night and I remember that there's 1,400 calories of graham crackers in the pantry. I don't know how deep to go with all this. YouTube is owned by Google. Google is owned by uh, shareholders, I guess. No, Google is owned by Alphabet. Alphabet is owned by shareholders. And those shareholders, Uh this is crazy, are owned by Google. Wait, what? That's how they get you. 
I'll, I'll run you through it again, Hank. YouTube is owned by Google. Google is owned by a uh-huh. company called Alphabet. Alphabet is owned by shareholders. And those shareholders have their worldview and values shaped by <laughs> Google. If I could just, I'll draw you a diagram. Imagine a snake that's eating its own tail. That's everything will be fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. This is this will this will work. Shireen, basically, YouTube and every other social media company is in the business of capturing and then monetizing your attention. They want as much of your attention as possible, and they turn it into money via advertising. Even Netflix, which doesn't rely on advertising, is in the business of trying to capture and hold your attention because when their shareholders, the people who own their company, when they look at how valuable Netflix is, one of the main things they look at is how much attention Mm -hmm. does Netflix capture. Because that translates to how much people are willing to pay Netflix. So as you spend more time on Netflix, Netflix says, oh, we can raise the price now. And if people are spending less time on Netflix, then the shareholders get very worried that Netflix will not be able to raise the price. And price raises are what the valuation of Netflix relies on. Like the idea that the price of Netflix will increase in the future is why the stock price of Netflix is high. So much of the contemporary U.S. economy, and and in many countries actually, is built around holding people's attention. And I think that we will Mm -hmm. look back on this time as being very weird for that reason, if indeed we are lucky enough to hang around long enough to look back at this time. This next question comes from Brenda, who writes, Dear John and Hank, my friend has invited me to her art exhibition at school. My other friends and I are very excited, and we want to bring her something to congratulate her, but she's allergic to almost everything. We were thinking about flowers or potentially baking her something, but those seem like high risk because of pollen Mm -hmm. and gluten. Do you have any Mm -hmm. suggestions for gifts to someone who's super allergic to many things? I'm allergic to grass, Brenda. Letter openers. Yeah. Brenda, DFTBA.com right now. (laughs) There are only 400 of these letter openers. And I cannot imagine anyone being allergic to the incredibly high quality plastic (laughs) that these letter openers are famous for. I mean, these things... Just for a little bit of context, these things, the average, average rating, star rating, is uh, mm. three three stars. <laughs> you Johnny, heard you me read correctly. Some of those top tier reviews right now. That's three <laughs> with a thr. Three <laughs> stars, not two, not one, not not, not four, not, four not five. <laughs> Oh God! What a what a t- uh, God! If this idea backfires and I end up with a lot of letter openers, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> Which ones did you get? None of your business. They're multicolored. <laughs> They're actually actually the average review is four stars, uh, but the most recent review from Sue Chang is three stars. Three stars. Okay, does the job, but the opening to the knife is too wide, so you got to be careful with your finger. Good Lord! How? What are you doing? They used to be just knives. That used to be the whole thing was a just knife. Yeah. Five stars, very sharp, perfect for opening envelopes. Well, I mean, that is its job. (laughs) (laughs) And then the only one star review is dangerous. This product is terrible. There is not enough of a safety guard on these, and I opened two letters with it and deeply cut my finger. So just heads up there. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, we are not responsible for any harm incurred. Oh my god. We're gonna get sued. We're gonna end up losing eight thousand dollars because we're gonna get sued by somebody who deeply cuts their finger on our hand signed letter openers. Available now at dftba.com. We're in too deep. By the way, this is a bit, but this is also very real. I need four hundred of you to buy these letter openers. <laughs> And use them with caution. Again, this, all our profits go to Partners in Health. We don't we don't keep any of this money. This next question comes from Anonymous, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, was that did we answer that question, John? Are yeah, we done? no, she's getting a letter opener. Okay. Congratulations on on your art exhibition." My sports team uh, started the recent season with one win followed by a pile of losses. Previously, it was a team that brought me a lot of joy, but now I feel as though their losses are coordinating with a more generalized depression uh, that I'm experiencing, and I'm struggling to find positive silver linings while they keep losing so badly. Sports are supposed to be fun, so I've kind of detached with the intent to get back in when they start being fun again. You seem to always find positives with AFC Wimbledon, even when they aren't playing to their top potential. How do you do that? Thank you. Feeling the baseball blues. Well, so the good news about baseball, right, is that no matter how bad your team does, they still get to be in the same league. You know, like if you finish at the (laughs) bottom of the major leagues, nobody says, like, you're not a major league team anymore. So that's a silver lining right there. I do want to say here, Anonymous, that if you are concerned about your mental health that is something to pursue, and it's probably not being caused directly by sports, but it's super real. And I do think that like, when we are in difficult places, the things that used to bring us joy stop bringing us joy, and that's not only about the results that the team is having. Mm-hmm. It is really difficult, though, just on a human level, when the team that you care about sucks. It's really miserable not least mm-hmm. because all of the opposing fans take a certain amount of glee <laughs> in your team sucking and that's <laughs> they, always a bad yeah, they, feeling they, they don't they aren't quiet about it no no and to be <laughs> fair like you don't see me having a tremendous amount of sympathy when things go south in milton Keynes. <laughs> so this is why one of my very favorite things in soccer is the songs sung by bad teams like, uh, right. for a while, some, AFC some way of reveling in how bad you are. Like, just like we yeah. understand the situation. Yeah, I think it was Aston Villa who were playing once, and they were down like five nil, and the fans started singing, "Let's pretend, let's pretend, let's pretend we scored a goal," and then they all went like <laughs> completely crazy. <laughs> That's good. And then there's the classic football chant, we lose every week, we lose every week, you're nothing special, we lose every week. <laughs> right, right. And I think that, like, if if you come in thinking that the point is to win and there's no other point than that, yeah. then that is just very disheartening. So the the thing that, that, like, the true fans, the people who can stick with it through the bad times, what they find are things to follow and things to celebrate that aren't the win. They might be an individual goal or a, a save or, like, a player doing very well or, you know, like, your pitcher making a, making a better, having a better game than their last game, even if they still lost. Like, you find the things to enjoy. Yeah, Hank, when we were kids, Orlando got uh, an expansion NBA team called the Orlando Magic. You might remember them. 
I do. Yes, they still exist, by the way. I literally don't know if they're still a professional basketball team, but uh, they were when we were kids. Yes. Yeah. I... So <laughs> they're a thing. They were bad their first couple of years. Then eventually they got Shaquille O'Neal and they got pretty good, but they were really, really bad their first few years. And do you remember, Hank, the guy who was the last guy on the bench of the early Orlando Magic? Uh, no, definitely not. His name was Morlin Wiley. And okay, yeah. No, I don't remember that. Morlin Wiley would get into like a game once the Magic were down by like 20 points. And people would get so excited when Morlin <laughs> Wiley entered the game. Like people would just go crazy. Every time the ball would get passed to Morlin Wiley, everyone would be screaming, shoot, shoot, shoot. When Morlin Wiley scored a free throw, you would have thought that the Orlando Magic had just won the NBA Finals. It was a beautiful thing to behold. And to me, like that, you've got right. to find that thing. You've got to find your Moreland Wiley way in, not only when it comes mm -hmm. to sports, when it comes to everything in life. Yeah. And I mean, the guy played 11 years. Oh, I was going to say he played 11 years in the NBA, but no, he played three years in the NBA. And then he had a very long career playing for lesser. Yep. Uh, man, lesser, you know, less... he bounced around a little bit. He played for the Rapid City Thrillers. John, I agree. And I didn't expect to get such insight from this question. So well done. <laughs> What, what, By the way, what right do we have getting at, at actual insight ever? That's not sorry. what this podcast is for. Sorry, it's not, it's not what we're about. Not what we're about at all. All right, Hank, we have another question. This one comes from Adam who writes, Dear John and Hank, what's the deal with the song The Itsy Bitsy Spider? Nursery hmm. rhymes and children's songs generally have morals of some sort or like teachable elements to them. So what's going on in The Itsy Bitsy Spider? Is it supposed to be a lesson in perseverance? Yes, Adam, that's exactly what it is supposed to do. Please help me understand, when it comes to good times, I don't subtract them. I, Adam. It's good. It's good, Adam. <laughs> I have listened to a lot of nursery rhymes in the last period of time, and I find that they don't have morals, do they? Well, I the, think one of a lot the of the wheels them don't, on the but... bus, they go round and round. That's all. That's what they do. The people on the bus, they go up and down. Like, I'm not learning anything here. Kids are right. like, Itsy Bitsy Spider is like, part of it is that it's like a hand game. And so there's hand gestures to go with it. And so you like, you get the kids doing the hand gestures. I completely agree with you that Wheels on the Bus or Old MacDonald Had a Farm yeah. have, as far as I can tell, no moral aside from the fact that um, life, especially when you are a child, is best lived on repeat. But... <laughs> I do think the Itsy Bitsy Spider song has, yeah. has a moral, which is uh -huh. precisely perseverance. I mean, the Itsy Bitsy Spider walks the up the water spout. spout, gets washed down, and then walks yeah. up the water spout. Again, there's two ways of looking at this, right? There's the Sisyphus is rolling a rock to the top of the hill, and then it rolls uh -huh. back down, and then he has to roll it back up for all of eternity. But as, as Camus famously said, one must imagine Sisyphus as happy. Like, you keep going. That is the like glory of the human story is we get washed down the water spout and we're like, no, no, I'm going back up to the top of this roof. I only after having a child realized that the water spout was what the water comes off of the roof in. I thought that it was the sink when I was a kid. Oh. I thought it was like climbing up into the faucet. 
So this is a a revelation for me when I picked up a book about Itsy Bitsy Spider and it showed the the water spout and I was like, oh, there's bound to be bugs up there. That's a fine place for a spider. Right. That's much less terrifying. So you thought yeah. it was a story about like spiders coming out of drains. Yeah, hiding, <laughs> hiding, hiding in the drains. Because that's in Florida, of course, things are always coming out of the drains. Uh, it's so true. I mean, <laughs> you. Every time I went to the bathroom as a child, I would look in the toilet, and like forty percent of the time, there'd be something—a snake. <laughs> I don't know. A spider. How, what are they doing in there? How tiny do they little find... alligator. <laughs> Uh, red, green, like our dachshunds poop. Yep, sure. He, he was loved very to poop. I mean, he, he, there was nowhere red wouldn't poop, including places that it was socially acceptable to poop. <laughs> he was like, try in here. Oh, they didn't actually get mad about that. I'll try somewhere else next time. <laughs> Speaking of perseverant, Hank, I mean, how about red, green? What a dog he was. Yeah. Not a good dog. But an no. incredible dog, like literally not credible. Red Green just had no quit in him at all. That's right. And he actually just celebrated his 35th birthday, Red Green. I would not be surprised <laughs> if Red Green were still alive somewhere. I don't think he's in a dog body anymore, but I think he might have like <laughs> made the transition. You yeah. know? He figured it out. He found a path. All right, we have another question. This one comes from Kuzema, who writes, Dear John and Hank, I hope you're both doing great. My name is Kuzema. Yes, you pronounced it right. Hmm. Don't (laughs) bet on me, Kuzema. And I love M&Ms. But a few days ago, I found out that I can't eat them anymore because the official Twitter account of M&Ms tweeted out in response to a certain question that M&Ms are not halal, rendering them unfit for consumption by me. I've loved them ever since I was a kid. I have fond memories of enjoying them whenever I got them as a gift from my uncle who brought them from Kuwait because I live in rural India and they're not available here. What do I do now? Any dubious advice is appreciated. Not eating M&Ms. Kuzema. So a few things, Hank. First off, M&M's really botched the announcement that M&M's were not halal, surprisingly (laughs) enough. This is how you do this on Twitter? You do it with Twitter? No, you would think that M&M's would be like tremendously culturally sensitive, but it turns out that no. Uh, That's the first thing. Secondly, because of the way they answered the question, all of the vegans were like, wait, what? Okay, and, yeah, and all thirdly, right. And, and, and thirdly, those of us who just enjoy M&M's but are neither Muslim nor vegan were also like, hold on a minute. Wait, 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 wait. How many how many animals are in my M&M's? Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> I, what if, what if uh, I have a belief system that requires me when eating M&M's to believe that I'm not eating meat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not vegan here, but I do... <laughs> I just like I, I but like I like to know if it's bacon or not. I want to know what animal parts I am eating when I'm eating animal parts. Is yeah, this part so, of and that's my that's my belief system. So then oh they were like, "Oh, when we release M&Ms in certain countries, they're sometimes halal. It's marked on the oh package." God. Oh, so Kuzema, okay. the M&Ms that your uncle is getting might actually be halal. It'll be marked okay. on the package apparently according to M&Ms Twitter. And then <laughs> secondly, it seems it, it it's not totally yeah. clear from their answer what 
the issue is. But people have long kind of believed in certain parts of the Islamic world that red M&Ms are not halal because, and I did not know this, the, the red dye, it like comes from beetles. Oh, it's so like what you're saying, parts. like they just have to do like M&Ms with no reds. And right, but then like when would be in vegan. the factory when they're made, you know, they haven't had uh, an imam with the expertise necessary come in and take a look at the factory, obviously. Sure, sure. And so that's why they're just like, oh, it's not halal. But then everybody's like, well, but what isn't halal about it? And the answer to that is maybe just the red M&Ms or maybe more because like they haven't, they, they just haven't <laughs> dealt with it well. And I frankly am, am, am disturbed on every level, and I'm sorry that, that you can't eat M&M's. I, I do think, though, Hank, that there are other chocolate candies that are just as good as M&M's, if not, dare I say it, better. Oh, my goodness. Well, look at look at John with the, with the outlandish statements here. Uh, do they have peanuts in them? Because peanut M&M's are all I care about. Peanut M&M's are very, very good. I can't... I, 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 I want to I want to be able to minimize this loss for Kuzema, but peanut M&Ms are pretty great. <laughs> this next question comes from Sarah. I think it's for me. Uh, who says, dear Hank and John, though, I mean, this is somewhat applicable to you as well. I have ulcerative colitis, so normally I poop a lot, but I almost never poop on the weekends. Huh. Why is this? <laughs> is my colon just taking a well-deserved break from a long, hard-working week of excessive pooping? <laughs> Sincerely, Sarah. Wow. That is somebody, fascinating. Somebody, yeah, somebody tell Sarah's colon that, like, the rules of employment in America do not apply to our colons. Everybody's working for the weekend, Hank. Even Sarah's colon. <laughs> yeah. This is the whole problem. It's working very hard, so it can take a couple days off. Yeah, working too hard. There is a thing called the gut-brain information access, Sarah, that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Mm. And the relationship between our brains and our intestinal systems, our gut system in general, is very complicated and weird. And that is probably what's driving this on some level, I would guess. Yeah, I also, in general, like I have many times when like I have no choice, but then I'll go on vacation and it'll be like two, three days. And I'm like, I am worried about like what's going to happen when what happens eventually happens. Right. And usually rightfully. And yeah. I don't know. Like it's very, I'm like, just do like whatever it is I find. And this is like, this is different for everybody, but I find I need certain triggers. Like my, apparently my brain, it needs some subconscious something. And here they are, my office, which is really annoying because I walk out of my office and I immediately have to go back into the house mm. to any bookstore, anywhere, honestly, where there are lots of books. I don't know what it is, but if I need it, then like it's better than X-Lax. Uh, wow. Or, yep. And I'm like, hey, you got the key to the bathroom? I just walked into your store. <laughs> I promise. I, I will. May yeah, buy when, something. When the sign says for customers only and you want to be like, listen, I will be a customer. However. <laughs> yeah, like, I, will be, I will be a dedicated customer. I will be so loyal to your brand. All I need <laughs> is that is that key with a very big keychain on it. Which reminds me that today's podcast is brought to you by bathrooms at your local independent bookstore. The bathrooms at your local independent bookstore. You can't get that on Amazon. 
That's not available on Amazon. This podcast is also brought to you by your losing sports team. They're not doing great, but find somebody to root for and just be happy that they're getting a chance to play a sport with people watching. What a great job. Moreland Wiley. Today's podcast is also brought to you by The Attention Economy. The Attention Economy, you're the product. And finally, this podcast is brought to you by Red M&M's. What's in them? They're beetly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a bummer. I mean, there's no way to get around it, man. Nobody wants to find out that their red M&Ms are beetly. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Chobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order, plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. Like, that's, yeah. I mean, oh, All right, Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, we have an important email that came in from Libby. You might remember Libby, Hank. She asked a few months ago for some Missoula recommendations because she was applying to college in Missoula at the University Mm -hmm. of Montana. She was coming to visit, and, and she wrote in to say... Dear John and Hank, I got that scholarship at the University of Montana, and I spent a wonderful day in Missoula. I ate at Biga Pizza, and now I'm going to spend the next (laughs) four years of my life here in Missoula, not at Biga Pizza, although it was very good, so I guess we'll see. When they told me I got the scholarship, they said that the fact that I'd heard about the university from a podcast really stuck out to them, so I guess I have you guys to thank and the pod for the $18,000. You're welcome, Libby, and I do take full credit. (laughs) If you would like to buy a letter opener to thank us, <laughs> they're available at dfdba.com. That's right. There's never been a better time to buy a signed letter opener. And, and also then there's we'll never ship been it to you from time. Missoula. And it'll, it'll go to Salt Lake City first, but it will come back. So that's how it works. <laughs> Hank, you made someone move to Missoula. It's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's a lovely place. I hope that you have found it, finding the housing situation affordable. Unlike, I'm sure you are, you have not. I'm sorry. Is the housing situation expensive in Missoula? 
it's getting it's getting that way. I mean, it's just increased a lot. It's still obviously much cheaper than a lot of places. Are the beers at the VFW still like 30 cents? The beer has not gotten more expensive, John. In fact, if anything, it's gotten cheaper because there are so many breweries competing with each other. I mean, I tried to give the person at the VFW a dollar for a PBR, and then they proceeded to give me like nine beers. (laughs) Hank. Yes. AFC Wimbledon are down to their last few games in League One, but the question now is, are AFC Wimbledon down to their last few games in League One? Oh boy, is it tight and difficult and scary. Wimbledon uh, played Oxford United over the weekend. It was nil-nil, and that was a generous result, I would say. Well, first of all, because Oxford United is is middle of the table, they've won their last four games before this one. They so have, like yes. they're doing really well, so it's good to beat a team that's doing well. Uh, we didn't beat them, just to clarify. To but tie yes. a team that's doing it's good to not lose to a team that's doing well. It was a borderline miraculous draw. Uh, they had 14 shots to AFC Wimbledon's four. Wimbledon had no shots on target. Aaron Ramsdale, our 21-year-old goalkeeper on loan from Bournemouth, just played like an absolute madman. I mean, he mm-hmm. was incredible. He he made so many world-class saves. I am so grateful to him. As a result of that point, AFC Wimbledon now have 44 points after 42 games. It mm. looks like this season, 50 points might be enough to stay up, maybe 51 So Wimbledon have to win at least two of their last four games. One of those four games is against Luton Town, who are running away at the top of the league. Yeah, Uh, that seems very unlikely that we'll beat them. Uh We have three winnable games. One is against Bradford City, who have lost like seven games in a row. Uh, One is against Wickham, who have lost four out of their last five. And one is against Bristol Rovers, who sort of middling like us. So we really need points in all three of those games, and at least two of them have to be wins. It is tense. That's coming down to the wire, John. When when it shows up on my screen and the the game is ongoing and there's no scores and it's happening and it ha- keeps happening for so many minutes. Oh, it's really, I mean, I watched uh, like, the whole Oxford United game and I was just sweating. I was just drenched in sweat by so. the end of it. Yeah, that, yeah. You gotta find. You gotta. You gotta find a way to not care about the winning, but it's very hard when there's this. Very, like if you were in the middle of the pack, who cares? Who cares? Yes, Yes. then I would be able to just enjoy the whatever. But as it is, all I can think about, oh, I just desperately, desperately, desperately want to stay in the league You have a lower goal differential than the two teams that have 45 points. I know. So if you just had 45 points, you wouldn't just be in 20th, you'd be in 19th. I know. We'd be out of the relegation zone if we'd beat Accrington Stanley, but we didn't tank, so it doesn't do any good to focus on that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying they have to, all that has to happen. So you're saying you need 51 points. I'm saying all that has to happen is Rochdale or Scunthorpe have to lose every game that they have coming, and you have to win one of them. Well, uh, that is technically true. Yes. If, if Rochdale and Scunthorpe, I think it's Rochdale, but nobody knows for sure. It's something for the scientists <laughs> to figure out. If they both lose all four of their remaining games, we only need one point. However, 
that's probably not going to happen. But maybe it will. I don't know. All I know is that I do not like being in the bottom four. On the other mm-hmm. hand, two months ago, Wimbledon were dead in the water, not just in last place, but seven points away from being not in last place. And now yeah. we are up to 21st. So there is hope. There is a possibility here. But boy, is it scary. All right. Well, in news from Mars, John, we have a mystery. So oh. as we as we know now, uh, four billion years ago, when Mars was very young uh, and the solar system was also quite young, Mars was a, a warm place uh, with lakes and it had rivers and it had probably big old oceans. And uh, it, it's, it, as time has gone on, the atmosphere that was hold it that was uh, had enough pressure to keep that water in a liquid state has gone away so there was a lot of atmosphere around mars and then yeah. it went away and the leading theory for how it went away and solar this is winds. what i've yeah always been told is solar wind that this these like the mars's magnetic field shut down it couldn't block the these high energy particles from the sun they hit the uh, particles in the atmosphere and one at a time they they get bumped out until there isn't much atmosphere at all left yeah i'm so interested in solar winds that now whenever my kids are like is human life going to end when you know the earth collides into the sun i'm always like no 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 first off it'll be way way before that (laughs) secondly Whatever right. replaces us and renders us extinct will go extinct when the solar winds come. Right. Yes. When they. Yes. Before the before the sun touches us, there will be many many bad consequences. So there's a new study out based on data from the Mars Express spacecraft um, that basically uh, went through and said like how would this process work based on the solar radiation that Mars is getting now. And solar wind would uh, account for, according to this study, less than 1% of the surface pressure that has been lost uh, over the last 4 billion years. Wow. Now, what this this means is one of two things. Um, They're both big things. One, we're misunderstanding how... Like, like maybe the early state of the sun, like maybe the sun was different billions of years ago than it is now, um, or how the solar wind interacts with the atmosphere of Mars. Two, the sort of like other big category of things that this might be is like, like a number of other things that could account for it, which aren't clear and and basically are like, if if it isn't one of those first things, it's just like, I don't know, man. There's a uh, a. A, a lot of work to do if it turns out that this is actually the case that the solar wind is not responsible we're just not sure like is it was it some kind of like cata- like catastrophic effect of a meteorite impact was it mm. Um, mm. uh was it like surface level chemistry that bound up all of the atmospheric compounds like what's happening nobody knows so In the billion or so years that Mars was a warm place with oceans and rivers, Mm -hmm. is it possible that a sentient species rose and fell and it is responsible for the (laughs) end of life on Mars? It did something to make the atmosphere go away in in their hubris. Is that within the realm of possibility or are there like chemical reasons why that is impossible? Well, there's sort of like entropic reasons um just that that it takes a very long time for in our one experiment for for 
any amount of complex life to evolve. So for, as an example, in the same time scale on Earth, um, we did not exit the realm of single-celled organisms. Right. That's true. That's that's not a bad point. But I would argue that the reason we didn't exit single-celled organisms is just because we hadn't made like one leap. And then once we made that one leap, the rest of it actually maybe went the, quite yeah, quickly. Maybe if the leap happened happened super early. Maybe. Exactly. Uh, or, or, maybe or, if the or, leap happened on like day four on Mars – there were like little people on Mars. I assume that they were little because that's what that's I, that's what I've seen in the movies. And <laughs> then, um, you know, they are the reason why Mars right. collapsed. Like like us with Earth. <laughs> Mars collapsed is a good name for a book. Could I use that? I mean, you can use it for a book. You can't use it for <laughs> the sequel to an absolutely remarkable thing. Bro doesn't make a ton of sense, no. I remember I started to do that, though. I started, like, any phrase I would hear, I would be like, hmm, that is an interesting (laughs) title. (laughs) Like, I'd be reading Shakespeare or the Bible or something, and, like, Mm -hmm. every other word in a psalm, I'd be like, hmm, the valley of the shadow of death, eh? That's very good. Mmm, black (laughs) popcorn. Mmm. Oat milk. Oat milk is a really bad... But yeah, you you uh, you aren't there yet, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> keep working on it. Just stay on the path. Hey, we've also got a Project for Awesome message today, John. It's from Ben Ratner, who says, quote, I'm Hank Green, and I'm saying this by my own personal choice. I have changed my mind, and as of this very moment, this podcast is now called Dear John and Hank. That isn't real, though. Just for clarity. That's what Ben wanted us to say. It's not real. <laughs> That was clever, Ben. I like it. Okay, we got to go now to record our Patreon-only podcast this week in Ryan's, which you can get at patreon.com slash John. But Hank, thank you for potting with me, and thanks to everybody for listening. Absolutely. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be, to be awesome. awesome.